This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Okay, well, good evening, everybody. Great to be around the table again to study God's Word. We are almost finished the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, we, this is our 39th session around this book. Okay, um, would you believe that? Um, it's been a, a, quite a long study, enjoyed it very much. And um, so before we begin our study, what is our time-honored Christian tradition when we get together and do anything? <laughs> we pray! That's what we do. Let's, let's engage in that tradition. Can I have a volunteer? Yeah, I'll pray. Father, we bless you for all your provision for us in so many ways. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity now to meet together in your name and under your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would honour us by your presence and lead us by your spirit. We pray. Amen. Amen. Yes, indeed. Honour us with the presence of God. So we've been studying the Acts of the Holy Spirit, a genre that is a sacred history. It is the sacred history of how the gospel goes west. Um, it is uh, uh, often de de depicted as a history of the early church. And yet, as we have discovered in our texts, doesn't actually say a lot about the early church. And uh, uh, particularly, we noted that when um, Paul got to Jerusalem. And after two years... Ended up in uh, in Caesarea in trial, and the the leadership of the temple were still gunning to get Paul, and yet there was no mention of what they were doing to the church in Jerusalem. No mention of James. No mention of the saints there. No mention of the myriads of of followers of the Messiah that had been declared so in uh, in Acts 15. They sort of just disappeared. Because uh, that was not what the text was interested in. It was interested in something else. And we're sort of kind of getting more of a picture that uh, Paul is on his way as a trial. So it could be a trial document. That is one tradition. Uh, but what we definitely see is uh, a heavy emphasis on the Holy Spirit as we've been looking. Also noting that as sacred history, sacred histories are not read the same way as a gospel. Uh, uh, we, we, the, the doctrines that we draw from sacred history are different. For example, um, choosing leadership in Acts chapter 1 is done by casting lots, but that isn't the way we do it anymore. Okay, So even though we know it's there in the text, this was a, a historical event as opposed to a doctrinal event. If that's the way Jesus had done it, there's a pretty good chance that's the way we would be doing it too. Okay, So we read those things differently. Um, we've had about, was it three chapters now, four chapters now, with absolutely no mention of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean he hasn't been present, as we have acknowledged the unseen uh, silent one, but uh, hasn't actually been physically mentioned. So <clears throat> what we normally do, normally go over last week's, <laughs> last week's uh, notes, which are going to be online, posted up. Uh, on Acts 26 to familiarize ourselves with what we've been, been doing. We were just getting schooled on December 25th and Christmas trees. And getting schooled on Christmas trees? I apologize for being late. 
as to where they came from. No, it's just why they were bleeding in that barrage and I've been lectured for about five times this week. Oh, okay. So you're getting good at it. You told you could do your own uh, No, I just keep asking, just name a date and I'm happy to celebrate. I, I don't care if it's the 25th of December or April 1st or June 20th. Just let me know what the date is and I'm all in. Okay. So, Acts 26. This is what we studied last week. The chapter opens with Paul standing before the man whose great-grandfather had tried to kill the infant Jesus and whose father had martyred the Apostle James in Acts 12. How will this Herodian treat the message of Messiah and the Jesus movement? Could be one of the things Paul was thinking. Paul has his third occasion to give his personal testimony. And each time he shares his story, there are adaptions, depending on his audience. And this will also be the same with us as we tell our testimonies in varying situations and with different peoples. And I'm sure we can all find that to be true, yes? Whenever we retell our own personal story, we often make adaptions, sometimes elaborations, sometimes we keep it short, sometimes we do it long, depending on who's there present and uh, how tired we are. In this account, Paul reveals, and he, does, he gives some new information which he had never seen before. He reveals that though he was born in Tarsus, he actually grew up in Jerusalem. So we often describe him as, Paul is a Hellenistic Jew. And suddenly we discover that actually might not be true. While having been born in Tarsus, yes, at a young age it says he migrated to Jerusalem. And he is part of a Pharisaical family. He later studying under Gamaliel. His defense before King Agrippa centers around the hope of the resurrection of both the Messiah and the dead as found in the Torah, the writings and the prophets. Paul is attempting to establish for Agrippa that the central issue that he's on trial for is one of interpretation of the hope in the Hebrew Bible. He hasn't made anything up. He's not uh, fomenting rebellion. He's doing nothing illegal. It's purely an interpretational matter. Paul includes in his self-disclosure of actions that have resulted in the deaths of the saints. Exactly what role Paul plays in those deaths is not explicitly detailed. However, Paul does give approval for such deaths. That's what it says he had casted his vote, he'd given approval. Exactly what that means, whether that was a deciding vote that actually sent someone to their death, not sure. He is therefore considered guilty of them. So Paul is a murderer. Here now we see the grace and mercy of God that in the power of forgiveness and the resurrection, a murderer can become a witness of the gospel. And then we had a little discussion. How would we react to such people and the role they might play in our communities? For example, how would we allow a redeemed and repentant Charles Manson to lead the youth retreat? Okay. The answer is probably no. Okay, and it's like, oh, we're wonderful that you've come to Jesus, but put the axe down. You're not having anything to do with our kids. Okay? But Paul is the opposite of that, is he not? You can see why the early believers were very reticent to have this guy around and why it took him quite some time to go away up north before he was invited back uh, to, to, to Antioch. And perhaps that is also the reason why God basically schooled Paul in quite a long time to prove to not just himself that he's a changed person, 
but the other, other communities as well. Okay? So how we treat each other after people come to faith or repent, that's an interesting question. And, and actually it might not be something you ever conclude. It might just be something we continue to talk about and have to deal with on a, on a continual basis. In Paul's explanation of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he adds some new details this time. And here are some of them. In verse 16, Jesus says that he has appointed Saul, and he uses his Hebrew name, though many translations will have a bias to say Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Right? We had this discussion. We went through around the text. The actual Greek says Hebrew. And yet we can see a translational bias. Uh, a translation actually is an interpretation. So you've got to find yourself a good interpreter. Uh, that he was going to anoint Saul as a servant. Okay, we hadn't seen that before. Now, when someone says you're going to be a servant of the Lord, that is, if you're Jewish, that is a hearkening back to the prophet Isaiah. A rich expression posting back to Isaiah 42, and the servant of the Lord, and the light to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, that's where those, those terms come up. Servant of the Lord, light to the Gentiles. Jesus was the direct fulfillment of that servant, yes. And now Paul will continue the ministry forward to the Gentiles. So do you see how prophecies can often be reinterpreted? Jesus is the servant of the Lord, yes. And now you are too. That where the same prophecy can be actually adapted to you. Okay? Being rescued... Oh, sorry, in verse 17, Jesus says that he will rescue Paul from both the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, that's very nice. However, being rescued does not mean being free from suffering, as we are about to see for Paul in the next chapter. What's going to happen to him? Shipwrecked. Okay, all kinds of nasty things are going to happen. Um, but he's going to get rescued. But that doesn't mean the suffering's not going to happen. Possessing the Holy Spirit as a seal from the Lord does not imply a trouble-free free life, void of stress, temptations, sickness, and pain. Verse 18, Jesus says that one of Paul's tasks is to open the eyes of the Gentiles and turn them from the power of Satan. I haven't seen that before. Israel is not under that power. Gentile nations are not. What do the Jewish people have that the Gentiles do not possess? The Torah. And so in Galatians 3, Paul says that before you had the Spirit, the Torah was your shield. It was defending you. But now you have the Spirit, the Spirit is your shield. That's okay. okay. But because the Gentiles don't have the Torah, the God of this age is, is, is looking after them. And so we've got to free them from the power of Satan. That doesn't mean they're all horrible. It doesn't mean they're all evil. It doesn't mean good things don't come from them. It just means that, that we need to set them free. Yet, as the Hebrew Bible consistently proclaims, God has a love of the Gentiles too, and he desires them in his kingdom. Okay? Every single time you see prophe prophecy about the future, it's always including Gentiles. And in the Psalms, Hallelujah, Adonai, Kologoyim, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Nations. Then Paul then declares that he has already been obeying these commands. Okay, he says, I've been doing this. I've been sending the light both to Jews and to Gentiles. And I've preached repentance, and that repentance is proved by deeds. Okay, that was verse 20. That was a very key, key uh, thing. We discussed that a little bit last week. Um, that when you do repent, it isn't something you just say with your mouth. Okay? You actually physically see it. Paul says, I want to uh, proven by their deeds of actually repentance. Okay. 
So, not by words only. Repentance has been a strong theme throughout Acts, as has been the declaration of the resurrection. This is absolutely too much for Felix, who announces that Paul has been driven mad and insane by his great learning. Later, he, Paul, will write in Romans that the resurrection is foolishness to Greeks, like Felix, and is a stumbling block to Jews. Right? This idea that, what do you mean Messiah dies? No, Messiah is a conquering king. We heard that today, did we not? Yes. Yeah, uh, we had an uh, hour-long yeah, discussion with an hour and nine minutes with a rabbi from the uh, Breslov community who you look, it's like, no, Jesus can't possibly be the Messiah because of the following things haven't been done. They were not done by him. And so you can see that it's a stumbling block for Jews. Total foolishness to the Gentile world. What do you mean God came down and became a human? What a load of rubbish. God died? No, nah, never happened. Right? That's just you insane. Okay, but, but so Paul has that, he has up to that experience, and so he writes it in, his, uh, in one of his epistles. Paul has delivered an eloquent speech, boldly declared the hope of faith and the resurrection. Yet, despite all the good words, Paul does not gain any converts. Even Agrippa chides him by saying, In such a short time, you think you can persuade me to be a Christian, using the term allocated to the believers in Antioch? Eloquent words can be very effective in some cases. However, most people's testimonies often reveal it was not powerful words that drew them to the Messiah. So anybody here whose personal testimony involves a powerful sermon that brought them to the Lord? It might be, but it is rare. Anyone? No? It's a rare thing. So when we, should, when we do give eloquent words, we should know most likely isn't going to be the thing that brings people to the Lord. Might be part of it. Might be a little bit of the drop that goes into a bucket that eventually overflows with the love of Jesus. But, uh, but it's usually something else. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draw him. Okay? At the same time, faith comes by. So somebody got to say something. And it doesn't always have to be eloquent. So, Paul now prepares to be sent to Rome, right? That's what he wanted, and as prophesied by Jesus himself. And so we begin the next uh, chapter of Paul's journey to Rome. So let's read Acts 27 and then see how far uh, we get. Uh, I'll start. We just go around the table. If you can't read, skip it. Um, otherwise, it doesn't matter what version, doesn't matter what language. In fact, it's a good idea to have a lot of all. And when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by... Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. 
There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship bound for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sindus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Samoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of the sea. Since, <clears throat> since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with much and much damage, not only to the lading of the ship and the ship, but also to all of our lives. But the centurion <coughs> paid more attention to the captain and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. When the channel south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly, and the wind of typhoon strength, called a northeaster, burst across the island and blew us out. Blew us out to sea. Yeah, the ship was caught by the storm. We could not hold head into the wind. So we gave way to it. We're driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cowder, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Uh, and then landed the ship with ropes to strengthen the hull. The sailors were afraid of being driven across to the quicksands of the African coast so they lowered the topsails and were thus driven before the wind. 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. <coughs> and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And on the third day, with their oka, when neither sand nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest reached, all hope of our being saved was left at the abandon. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only on the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Nevertheless, we must run again, uh, run aground on some island. About midnight on the 14th night of the storm, as we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, the sailors sensed the land was near. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Short time later, they took soundings again and it was 90 feet deep. 
And fearing that we may, might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying up anchors from the bow, hmm. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Just before daybreak, Paul urged all of them to take some food, saying, Today's appointed day that you, may, that you have been in suspense and remaining without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Do not a hair <coughs> from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. <coughs> then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And we were in all in the ship, two hundred, three score, and sixteen souls. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea. Then they lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed towards shore. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. <coughs> Well, there you go. Wasn't that a, a dynamic chapter? I mean, all the detail that's there. You've got Paul had two years captivity in Caesarea, one line. And what did you do? Okay, but the detail they throw into this one. My gosh, why do you think that is? So that I could learn how to sail a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you when yes, that's right. Remember, this is biblical, right? So in presence of a storm, it's so the grain out, you know. This. <laughs> so, what do you think, guys? Is there anything there that you that you noticed for the first time? Um, I mean, I swear, new verses are always added to my Bible every time I read it. 14 days is a long time not to repeat season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, although I guess with that, so who's, who's actually been seasick? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, you really don't feel like it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yes. But it's it a long time for a storm to be running too. Two weeks? Mm. That's yeah. kind of unheard of. Yeah, it is a, it is a massive storm. Yeah. 276 is a lot of people. Yeah. Well, some some would say seventy-six. Oh, do they? Well, yeah, more about seventy-six. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very big, um, big ship. Also, that it said that they didn't see the sun or the stars for many days, so they probably weren't able to navigate. They can't. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, very interesting where they. 
army in Nam where they, they end up, they're heading for Rome, they, they, they leave Crete and they end up in Malta. Right? They end up in Sicily, <laughs> you know, because um, they were blown all that way. And, uh, yeah. I mean, Malta's quite a small target. It's a small target and it's really yeah, rocky. <laughs> yeah, it is really rocky. And it's full of refugees right now, yeah. They've been boats right around the mountains. Oh no. Yeah, so still doing, still doing this. Wow. More things change, the more they stay the same. Okay. Alright. Anything new there that uh, you might have picked up? I'm always struck by the, the extra little bits of revelation that appear to Paul. He never gets the whole story. Right? You know, Jesus, Jesus himself had said, you're going to go to Rome. Now we get, you're going to be go to Caesar. You're, you know, um, these, these sort of little bits of information. Well, why couldn't you just tell me that all in the one go? But, uh, but for some reason, and maybe that's a lesson for us, though, you know, we don't often make doctrines from sacred history, but... You know, perhaps sometimes you just get that little bit at a time and then perhaps you have to have a little bit more later. Um, not sure. All right. I notice in the maps at the back of my Bible that this is counted as one of Paul's missionary journeys. He never actually set out himself. You know, he was taken, wasn't he? Whereas on the other journeys he was... Yeah. He was part of the planning. Right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. In the, the first missionary journey in the book of Acts, that was that interesting thing where the Holy Spirit actually spoke. Right? The Holy Spirit spoke and said, you set these ones to me and I'm going to send them out. But here you're right. There's no voice of heaven saying, Paul, get thee to Rome and you know, make your plans. Um, he's taken. Interesting way to describe it. Uh, an unplanned missionary journey. Anyone had those? Probably. Anyone? No, that was just kind of verse 21, when Paul basically said to them, well, I told you so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can just imagine him saying that. You know, it's like, now, if you'd listened to me, yeah, we would have been swimming in the creek by now. Yeah, yeah that's uh, very interesting that you actually included that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I told you so. Yeah, next time, listen. Why do you think there's so much detail here? You mean they didn't have to put all this in? Could have just said, "Well, we set out, but along the way we kind of got shipwrecked. Uh, now we're in Malta." Um, it's well, all he does do is demonstrates the character of Paul, and even though he's bound and he's a prisoner, he acts like a leader the whole time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not only does he not try himself to escape. But he requires every, no one else to do the dirty. That's thing. right, yeah, no one else comes. Save as much as well from the boat. Mm. You can't do this. So he actually was the guy determining what happened. Mm. And I think if we consider this to be an aspect of his defense, for his defense council, this would look good. Actually, yeah. how Paul conducted himself when he was a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Yep. And the answer is exemplary. Yes, and because he actually off. gets off, his defense wins. Right? Yes, the, yeah. church history says that yeah, he did actually get to Spain. quitted and he was able to go on a, a further journey, yeah, maybe even to Spain, uh, yeah. you know, another missionary journey. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I think there are Spanish traditions of Paul mm -hmm. in Spain. Mm -hmm. 
if you if anyone reads Catholic hagiography. But anyway, which I think you should. I think there's a, there's some good stuff there too. Anyway, all right. Let's have a look a bit more in depth on the verses. So, verse one. When it was decided uh, that we would set sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. Okay, so this is uh, some new information that we receive. Um, Agrippa has not been actually able to give Festus any real information, you know, any useful information that's going to help in his report. Remember, Festus doesn't understand what to write to, to Rome. And uh, Paul stands up in front of Agrippa, and the end result was, well, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, the guy let go. That, you're not really useful. There's nothing actually uh, helpful, but we're sending him to Rome as requested. There's a bunch of other prisoners, unnamed, we don't know who they are, uh, and yet we get the name of the centurion for some reason. There's no other historical information about this guy. Although the, the uh, Imperial Regiment is a real regiment and was based in, um, in the area known as the province of Syria, so that's true. Um, what's interesting is we have a we passage again. Yeah, um, yeah. Luke, Luke's here. We haven't had a we passage since Acts 21. Okay, so you know now it's six chapters later and uh, Finally, it says we showed up. Um, that doesn't mean that Luke wasn't around during the two years that Paul was in um, in Caesarea. Although we do discover the name of somebody else who's uh, with Paul, and what's his name? Aristarchus. Okay, so we boarded a ship from. Uh, Ad, uh, Adramitium, uh, about to sail for the ports along the coast of the province of Asia. Okay, um, so uh, normally, if you were doing a, a pre-sailing thing, um, what would you do? Anyone know the traditions in Greco-Roman culture for a sailing ship to actually set sail before anything is done? What do they do? Make a sacrifice to whatever water god they've got. So Poseidon usually being the big one. And, um, and so they will make a sacrifice and look at the innards of some animal or whatever, you know, drink blood or whatever they do to figure out whether they can or they cannot sail. And they will not sail if the omens are bad. Okay, so what they did is they make a sacrifice. Doesn't say that they did, but that's what they would have done. Okay, and uh, whoever this is, this is a grain-carrying vessel. Vessel, the um, Rome, Rome is in desperate need for grain. You have a million people living in a city. That is a huge number in the ancient world, and they have a massive requirement for food. And so the big, big uh, industry was to get grain from Egypt to to uh, um, Rome all year round. And that, that's actually the reason why King Herod built Caesarea. He constructed this elaborate man-made port for the sole purpose of doing what? Making money. And because he knew that the grain in Israel ripens two weeks earlier than the grain in Egypt. So if I can figure out how to get my grain 
to Rome first, I'm going to make a killing. Because when strawberry season starts, what's the price of strawberries when they first come out? 25 shekels a punnet, okay? And what are they at the, what, what, what price are they at the end? Two for five, okay? You know, I mean, you can see the big difference, okay? So he, he's, he's smart. He builds Caesarea so that he can get his grain to Rome uh, first, which he does, and he, he makes lots of money. And Caesarea is a thriving, thriving business. But in the wintertime, it's a dangerous job. And so it was only the brave sailor who actually bothered to uh, get grain to Rome. And they did. And the Mediterranean Sea is full of shipwrecks. Okay? It is packed. Even, but, but they were so desperate for grain that Claudius, you know, that crazy mad uh, guy before Nero, um, he, 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 he promised if any sailor loses their ship, we'll pay for it. I mean, it was worth them even taking the chance because Rome was so desperate for grain that they would, they would, they would cover uh, shipwrecks, which is a good deal if you're the sh ship owner. What do I care whether 100 sailors died? I don't care. Build another ship, hire a bunch of new sailors, especially if he's paying for it. Um, and so we end up in storm season and we've found ourselves some guys who are still willing to set sail. In this case, uh, uh, Adramantium, wherever that is, um, but it's going to stick around the coastal, coastal areas, so this captain's not done. Uh, and they're going to make their sacrifices, they get their omens, and they're off. And we get a little hint of a traveling buddy. Okay, not just Lucas, it's uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He was with us. How long has he been around for? Ever since Macedonia. We have no idea what this guy uh, does, but he had, does show up in some of Paul's other letters. Anyone want to read Colossians 4, verse 10? Okay, so what do we know about uh, Aristarchus? He's a fellow prisoner. We have no idea what his crime was or what he does, but somehow he's been hanging around with Paul, much to his uh, joy, I'm sure, and, um, and yet he appears as a fellow worker. We hear nothing much about him. He appears in Acts 19, so I'll read this first. Yes, okay. Um, Acts 19, uh, verse 29. Uh, so the city was filled with confusion, and this is uh, at Ephesus, where there was a, 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 near, well, a near riot in the, um, <laughs> the theatre, so when they were shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, yep. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So it sounds like that he has actually accompanied Paul on other occasions as well. It, yeah, it looks like he's actually picked up uh, Aristarchus on his mission, one of his journeys and has followed him along. And he becomes part of the we group. Uh, so he's probably been hanging around in Caesarea for the last two years as well. Okay. And, um, and, and these guys are being supported 
by the believers in Caesarea because in Roman, Roman law, they didn't take care of prisoners. So if you were in prison, your family had better show up and pay, they'll give you food, they'll give you clothes because we ain't doing it. And, uh, and so it was a very good, what was one of the gimilut chasadim, one of the acts of loving kindness in the early church to visit the prisoner. Okay, and we often think, oh, I'll just do prison ministry, I'll go visit some murderer. Not necessarily. It was actually to visit your brothers and sisters. Visit them, pay for them, take care of them, feed them, pray with them, stand with them, go to their trials. Um, it wasn't just, I'm visiting a prisoner because that's what God told me to do. Ah, oh, you do that too. But, but in context, okay, in, the, in, the, in that world, uh, in, the, in the Roman world, uh, that was the thing. Prisoners had to be looked after by the family. Because in the Jewish world, you didn't have prisons. There are no prisons in the Bible. Right? When you have a trial and you find somebody guilty, what do you do? Punishment is immediate. You're guilty, you've murdered someone, we'll kill you. You stole something, you better pay back four times. Can't do it, sell you into slavery. There's no go home, think about it, we'll put a restraining bolt on you, uh, we'll put you in a prison. There's none of that. Okay? that the, the idea of a prison is a Greco-Roman idea. Okay? And so the traditions regarding prisons are Greco-Roman. And you can see, visit the prisoner. Mm. Well, in the Bible, we never actually had any, but um, in the Greco-Roman world, we do. Okay? Uh, and so here is our Aristarchus, who's been around. And for some reason, they feel like naming him. Why do you think? Because he actually does nothing in the rest of the story, does he? There's no giant prophecy from him. We've had that happen before. Remember, Silas is a prophet. Remember it says, Silas, who's a prophet? And then he actually never gets any prophecies at all. <laughs> yeah, oh, great. I'm glad we had that information. We don't know why Luke took it upon himself to name this. But perhaps Aristarchus shows up being imprisoned in Rome with Paul and plays some role in Rome of which we know nothing about. Is he mentioned in Philemon? Yeah. Oh, read that out. I didn't. The last, last verse, verse 24. It, it's just, so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Greek, my fellow workers, sending greetings. Oh, yeah. It's probably the That's same it. guy. Yeah. 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 We don't know, we don't know what he does, but he, he's obviously worth it. Right? So do you think maybe it's just a statement of faithfulness to, to other people? Could be. Yeah. Maybe, maybe people who knew him would say he never abandoned me he look at look at the other guys that did although it doesn't say we don't know it does give him his lineage he's macedonian for Thessalonica. it deliberately wants to say who this guy is and then proceeds not to say anything about him at all he probably did something for on paul's behalf in rome but we don't know what it is. He might have done something on his behalf in Caesarea as well. Possible. It possibly could have yep. been an encourager. Could have been. It could, yeah. Could have been the guy who paid for everything. We don't know. Yeah. We have no clue what, this, what, he, what he was doing. But he was valuable. So, uh, valuable enough to get his name mentioned when no one else does. So what seems clear is that he sticks around with Paul in Rome. Yep. So he's present when Paul is writing his letters from Rome. Yep. One of, one of which is Philemon, yep. Yep. Okay. So, uh, as part of their journey, we now go into this um, this, this sort of detail, okay? Um, I'm not 100% sure why uh, we have to have it all, but, but we get it. 
Okay, uh, we are land at uh, Sidon, and Julius, in kindness uh, to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Again, the text is 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 in context. Paul is a prisoner. Rome ain't paying. Okay, so we pull into a, 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 another one of these grain ports. Sidon is another one. Okay, Lebanese grain is off to Rome to make lots of money. And, uh, and, and Paul has friends in Sidon. Where do you get those from? Well, when Paul went from Antioch down to Jerusalem, the text actually says that he, actually, he went to the cities in Phoenicia. So he's, he's probably even preached there. So the, the community is familiar with Paul. They're familiar with the believers in Antioch. And, uh, and it, the, the, it's, what do people's translations have for verse 3? Does anyone have a different translation? The next day we landed in Sidon and in, I've got in kindness to Paul. What, is, what have other people got? Treated Paul kindly. Okay. The Greek is allowed him to go receive care. So what does that actually imply? He's not well. Yeah, Paul's sick. Okay. And uh, and the and the the Roman centurions like, oh, uh, no one's dying on my watch. Okay. So go get go get better. Go see a doctor. Whatever. And. Uh, doesn't tell you how long that they stayed there um, or anything, uh, but, but he's, 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 he's obviously cared for. From there we put out to sea again and we passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Okay, So things immediately start taking a turn and they end up in Cyprus, but not exactly where they had, had wanted. And then they start sailing across the open sea and we, we uh, uh, off the coasts of Sicilia and Pamphylia. And we go to a place called Myra. Oh, there is someone incredibly famous from Myra. Does anyone know who that is? Um, yes. Santa Claus is named. Yep, we are now in the season of the dude from Myra. Okay. Although he's not mentioned in the text either. But um, it's interesting that St. Nicholas or Nicholas, whoever the bishop or if he was a bishop, um, is attributed as a, as a bishop, is from Myra. Um, and the whole mythology of Saint, Saint uh, Nicholas comes about. Um, how did he get to become a saint? Do you know, Neville? Anyone, any, anyone have a clue of what this guy did that got him such a... Such oh, a he was kind of the poor. He's kind of poor, but there's there's one particular thing he did that um, gives him his saintness. Anyone anyone know? I mean, it's it's hagiography. It's a tradition. You know, it's not um, uh, it's not really in a text down per se. Um, there was a, a poor man who had three daughters, and uh, being very poor and having no money for dowries or anything like that, couldn't marry them off was actually going to sell them into slavery. Which would mean what for a girl? Sexual slavery. Okay. And so what did, this, what did uh, Nicholas do? He went and raised money and he bought and paid for all their dowries. And the tradition is that he threw the money 
down the chimney. Not that I think that they had chimneys back then. And the money landed in a stocking. Not that I think that they had stockings there either. However, okay, okay. The more likely he actually just paid for the dowries, okay? And, uh, and then he sort of is awarded this, oh, you're such a saint, you know, you're such a ishkadosh, you know, you've saved my daughters from this horrible, horrible fate. And uh, he ends up becoming uh, Saint Nicholas with the tradition of looking after the poor, paying for dowries and throwing money down chimneys that land in stockings. Uh, and that later on becomes Saint, saint Nicholas, saint Santa Claus, okay? And his dates are roughly what? Uh, third and fourth century. Yeah, so it's a, it's a long time before we end up getting the fat guy in the red coat. Um, although, to be honest, if he was a monk, a Nazir, what would he be wearing? Yeah, robes, and he might have been large. Okay, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So Coca-Cola. Yeah. So take away the Coca-Cola stuff, and what have you got? You got a fat monk. Okay, in robes. Okay, very jolly and happy. Um, and so, so Santa Claus became. Um, red and white. Anyway, so they, they happened to land at this place called uh, Myra. It's always an interesting little, little piece of history. Uh, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship, so he switched ships, right? This, this one was actually never going to go to Rome, but they knew that if we could get, get just enough to another international port, we'll find something going, going to Rome. So the centurion finds an Alexandrian ship, which is e Egyptian grain, okay, probably not fresh grain, um, right? Because the grain season's already been done, all the good grain's already out there. Here we have uh, probably maybe a second harvest um, uh, of, of material. Winter's getting bad, but doesn't matter. If, if the ship sinks, does, Claudius will pay for it, or Rome will pay for it. Um, Nero will pay for it. And they made slow headway. Okay. We'll have some coffee. Sounds good. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, and then we arrive off this place called Snyder's. I mean, all these names just keep showing up. The detail's incredible. And uh, the wind did not allow us to hold our course, so we sailed to the Lee of Crete. Okay, we're getting a little closer. We're now in Greece. Okay, opposite uh, Salome. And we move along the coast, and they go to a place called Fair Havens, which is actually a known spot. And you can tell by its name, Fair Havens, that it is a quiet haven, port, yes. It's a haven for ships. And many would, would leave there, okay? They would, would, you get as far as this guy and just wait out the window, okay? Um, not the nicest place, and uh, still not the, the uh, even though it was called Fair Havens, still had posed some danger. Um, in verse 9, uh, much time has been lost. That would have had been no bearing to Paul at all. What really is, 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 is important is, would be for the people who were um, paying for this trip. Because the longer they stayed on board means more food needs to be consumed. More water needs to be drunk. So more expenses. Your profit margin is going down. Um, but to Paul, I don't care. Just get me to Rome. I mean, I'm a prisoner. It doesn't cost me anything. I mean, this is a free trip. Okay. Well, apart from the fact that all his friends are paying for him. And uh, the sailing is now dangerous because it, the fast has been over. Which fast are we talking about here? Yom Kippur. Yes. In the Hebrew, does it actually say the Chag of Yom Kippur or does it just say Chag? Um, 
Yeah, that's nine. verse uh, nine, ten, somewhere there. Yeah, it, it all depends on, on what the interpreter wants to say, right? Because uh, sometimes this Chag can mean Shavuot, but we're not in Shavuot at all. We're in the dangerous seasons of September and November. Those are the, the danger months for sailing in the Mediterranean. Um, so we've had uh, Yom Kippur. Paul's had to have his Yom Kippur on a ship. Okay. And, uh, and he knows the time and the date because what does he get to see every single night? The stars and the moon, right? You can tell the time, especially when you're on a lunar calendar. Very handy uh, in the sea, and he knows that even the the, the, the Yom Kippur has happened. So we're we're after September. We're in the rainy season. We are in the rainy season for the lands. We're also in storm season for the Mediterranean. Okay, um, and uh, this. So what, what was the festival that we thought was being celebrated further back for somebody? Correct. That was the Festus had stayed eight yes. days. Well, yes, it must have been Shavuot. No, there's nothing. Yeah. Yes. So we're now looking at um, from from Shavuot to Yom Kippur. It took that amount of time to figure out a ship that they could put. So they didn't just stick Paul on the first nearest boat. They obviously collected. I mean, pre made preparations for these sails. I mean, they didn't have things called pleasure cruises back then. Okay? I mean, it, there's just no such thing. So you're on, when you're going to go anywhere on a ship, it's it's a working <laughs> ship. It's a working vessel. Um, and now and now Paul gives them a warning. Okay, where does he get this warning from? How does Paul have this knowledge? So Paul warns them, right? Verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives. Now, what's, how does Paul know this information? What are some of your options, guys? You've really actually only got two. <laughs> Aristarchus was a prophet after all. There you go. It could be, yeah. Finally, Aristarchus said something worth listening to. Okay. Uh, maybe. Paul himself had a word from the Lord. Could be. Paul himself had a word from the Lord, though he doesn't actually say that here. Um, but yeah, he could have. Sorry? Maybe. Have a read of um, 2 Corinthians 11, 25 and 26. By the way, it doesn't say hard or or. The, interesting. Says, uh, after the fast, just. After the tzom. After the tzom, yes. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Ah, yep. So that would be that would be very that would be the Jewish way of saying it. Yep. I guess that would be the tzom. Yep, tzom. Uh, the destruction of the second temple would be the other tzom. But hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So that would be yep. That would be. Two Corinthians 11, 25 and 26. Paul's giving us a little bit of his background again. Okay. What does it say? Three times I was beaten with rods. Oops. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. <laughs> and night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, 
danger from false brothers. Man, sucks to be him, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, poor guy. But isn't, isn't it interesting? Uh, I've been shipwrecked three times. So uh, what's, what's one way that Paul might be able to give a good warning? Experience! You know? <laughs> Paul's looking, you know, I've actually seen this before. It not, doesn't, doesn't work out for us last time, okay? Um, and, uh, it, and so he, he shares. So it could have been a word from the Lord, but it actually just could have been plain experience. Paul could be looking around at the ship, looking around at the weather and going, no, it, this is bad. I've, I've seen this before. Okay. The wording in King James is that gentleman I perceive. I perceive. This gen- that this journey will be... Yes, I think, I think also, yeah, I think the Greek does not imply a, a word from the Lord. Because then he would say, I know, or something. So there is this, I think it's from his own personal experience. And, uh, of course, do we listen to the, the hero? Uh, no. Um, and, and isn't that often the way we do it? Somebody has experience, somebody has done this before, and they say, listen, you know, I've driven these cars, you know, in 80 miles in the 60 zones, it doesn't work, I'm, I'm going to have a go. Yeah, excellent. Okay. We don't, do we? There's something about us that, uh, but it is wisdom. It does say in the Torah, right, that, um, you know, wisdom is from, from a gray hair. And uh, we really should listen to those who have had the experience before. But... Here, um, the centurion, for some reason now the centurion's going to make the decisions. Okay, in listens, uh, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, and that's an interesting way to, to, to mention it, whoever's reading this manuscript, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, you would think the owner of the ship would have the last call. Would you not? Yeah, I mean, in my grain, I'm the one making all the money. You're here just booking a ride. Keep your prisons in order. But um, then again, what does a centurion have that the ship owner doesn't have? A sword. <laughs> okay, so sometimes, you know, having a small army with you can help as well. Okay. So the centurion somehow is in the decision-making uh, way and uh, listens to the advice of these other two people. And, and isn't that interesting? Why would they want to risk running these storms? What, what possible motive have they got? Purely money. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, they're risking their lives to, to generate uh, some sort of income. And, uh, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That is exactly how human nature still does it today. Does it not? We still do dumb things, never listen to advice, often for the pursuit of making money. Okay, and, um, and, and, and we see it uh, here as well. So it says that the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, okay, even though it's called Fair Havens. Okay? Now, archaeologically, it, it still could have been a lot safer and they would have probably survived. Um, the, the majority decided that we should sail on. All of a sudden, we're a democracy. Well, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I wonder how they took that vote. Um, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there, which is a bit further up uh, the island, still on the island of Crete. So after their discussion, what's the end result? We're actually not going to make it to Rome. We're actually going to winter somewhere. Right? The, so the plan eventually comes down to, we're not going to make it, we'll go and winter uh, in, a, in another harbour. Okay? 
so it's at the edge, uh, so Crete's this long sort of like island, okay? Uh, at the moment they're sort of down here in the middle and then Phoenix is over here. So apparently it's a bit safer from uh, winds, which are, are coming, um, they're northwesterlies. Okay, uh, then, then we get a big detail about the storm. We go into a lot of detail, uh, and I think Neville's correct. It demonstrates the character of Paul um, in, this, in this situation. And they get a gentle south wind. Oh, that's lovely. And they think that they have got what they wanted, so they, they set out. They weigh anchor and, and begin to sail, trying to stick close to the shore, sea land. Um, however, it turns into a hurricane force. Uh, and the northeaster swept down from the island. And the ship is caught in the storm and could not head into the wind. So they gave way to it, which means what would they do with the sails? Yep, they would lower them, except they would keep just a little one called a storm sail. Uh, so that the, and that's what, and it would, it would just go wherever the winds were taking them. And so you're not steering anymore. Yeah, you're just letting the ship go. Well, to get back to Phoenix, they would have to have gone into the wind to an extent. Correct. So yep. They tried, couldn't do it. Yep. And so now they're just, just going wherever the storm takes them. And uh, it's taking them uh, towards Malta. And uh, they passed into the lee of a small island called Corda. I don't know what that means. Any, any sailors know what a lee means? Does that just map? Oh, lovely. But what does a lee mean? The no, lee. It ah, does it? Yeah. Okay, so they they worn into an area where the wind was a bit less. Okay. Have you heard of the Windward Islands and you've heard of the Leeward Islands? Uh, no. no. But they're they opposing Windward and Leeward. Ah, okay. All right, very good. And uh, they had to secure the lifeboat. Now, what does that mean in, ter in, in sailing terms? Where does the lifeboat normally sit on a ship? Actually, it doesn't. It's towed behind. Okay, so there's a, there's the big boat and there's a small boat. Okay, and uh, unlike you know the Titanic, which didn't have lifeboats or enough of them, uh, which are on the boats, these ones were always just on the on the back. So what they did is they actually had to physically put the boat <coughs> on their boat, okay? and uh, they were hardly able to secure them, but they did. Okay? So it was pretty impressive. And the men hoisted it aboard and they passed ropes under the ship itself. Ooh, now what does that entail? <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, what they're doing is they're basically wrapping their ship up. Okay, so what they do is they put a line from one side of the boat like this and then they, some guy, <laughs> ties a rope to himself and jumps off and tries to swim under the boat. Like they just, they, they pull him up. And, and, and then he just, um, they, they just keep wrapping the, the thing around and they tighten it so that it, it tries to hold the planks together as much as possible, make it as secure as possible, okay? Um, so they, 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 they managed to do that. Okay, they're fearing that they would run, a, run aground in various sandbars or you know, the, the, the lower rocks. So they, um, uh, they lowered the sea anchor. Um, I'm not 100% sure what that, Means, I don't know what I don't know whether that means that they actually put something in the water, or whether they actually just cut a line and, and a weight was dropped. Because um, my translation says they lowered the gear. Okay. 
in in um, in the ancient world, I had a little little Google to see how they would act, ships would do these things. Um, when a ship uh, was set, doing a course, you would actually have various anchors, weights, and you would actually use them once. Not 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 all anchors were actually lowered and raised. There's several reasons for that. <coughs> they were really heavy. And so what you would do is you would have like, we think we're going to stop 16 times. So you would have 16 weights. And when you actually arrived, you want to stop your boat, you'd throw one of them overboard. And then it was tied by a rope. And when you wanted to weigh anchor, you would cut the rope. Right? And so um, when they start throwing off their other weights and anchors, that's a big deal. That tells you that they don't think they're ever going to stop again. Right? So that's... Um, right? Um, so they took a, they take a violent battering from the storm the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard okay, so, which is a big deal the last thing that gets thrown overboard is the grain okay so it's a grain merchant but there was probably some other stuff that they were selling as well you know wines olive oils perfumes um, some of the frankincense was a big one okay the spice roots that you would you would have okay which was a, a weight on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. And then when neither, uh, they, they didn't see the sun for many days, they, they didn't think they were actually going to get saved. So they've thrown just about everything over. And now the people have gone without food. And here you get this little bit of um, mystery again, where the text tells you a new revelation, but in, in the past tense. It doesn't give you the, an angel of the Lord appeared and said, blah, 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 blah. You actually get a a vision sequence occurring in the, in a in a in a retelling. <coughs> Men, you should have taken my advice. Okay, good old good little scolding. Right. I was right, you were wrong. Uh, then you would not have spared yourself all this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because none of you will be lost. Just the ship. Okay, I don't know how encouraging that is for everybody, but uh, why? Because last night. An angel of the God who I, whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. Now, why does Paul have to say it like that? Because they were other gods they served, so he just wanted to... Yeah, that's right. Because these guys, are, these guys would have given their offerings before setting sail. They would have made their sacrifices, get a good wind. They would have think, oh, Poseidon is with us. And so, and so Paul says, I've had an angel from the Lord, but not from one of your gods, from, from a God I serve, though the only one that there is, but the one that I, I serve. Because these guys are religious. Most people think they're pagans, or they didn't believe anything. They actually did. They had a very vibrant uh, religious system. They, they believed in their gods. They believed they were real. They made their sacrifices. They thought that um, by saying certain prayers and doing certain things that would manipulate nature. Uh, yes. the, the irony is that it's the Christians who are called the atheists. Yes. Yeah. Because they didn't follow all the gods. Yes. They all gods. So they were against the gods. Mm -hmm. So Christians were atheists. And, and, and that's what Pompey called the Jewish people. When he conquered, when he conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC, he walked into the Holy of Holies. Right? That's one of the things he did. And what did he find in there? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. So what did he do? He turned down and he said, you're a bunch of atheists. There's no gods. 
He was expecting to see what? Some statue. It's like, oh, I found that. There's their God. But he's like, nothing wrong. Comes out, you're all atheists. And uh, how wrong he was. And the Jews never forgave him for doing No, they did not. And he didn't last long afterwards either, by the way. So somebody upstairs is a little disappointed with that action as well. Okay, so last night an angel of the God whom I am, who, who, whose I am, I his servant and who, whom I serve, stood beside me. Okay, now what's interesting about this, is, is this interesting to, to anybody in terms of it being an angelic presence? Who has stood beside Paul before? Jesus came. Yes. Him on the yes. But when you, when you read the, the sacred history of the book of Acts, you just cannot figure out when what heaven's going to do. Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks. Sometimes Jesus speaks. Sometimes it's a voice from heaven. It's a but call. And sometimes it's an angel of the Lord. And you can't pick. There's no formula for how this works. Uh, why doesn't Jesus show up? Maybe Jesus gets seasick. Most probably not. But we have no idea why he doesn't. He's done it before, but for some reason, he, it's an angel this time. And uh, what does the angel say? What they usually say when they first arrive, which is, don't be afraid. Because usually when angels show up, what's the first thing that happens? Yeah, people are like, ah! <laughs> okay? um, but uh, not to everybody, but to a lot of people, um, they, the first thing, don't be afraid. Uh, I, what does this now you get a new piece of information what does Paul have to do according to heaven he now has to stand trial before Caesar which we have never had that before and, uh, and God here's another nice new piece of information has graciously given you the lives of all those who sail with you now why would God do that Maybe because Paul had prayed for them. Most possibly, yes. Is you know, at night in Paul's prayers, you know, dear Lord, please save these people. They don't know you. They need to know you. Don't take them now. And that prayer, though it isn't in the text, but it's hinted, isn't it? And God says, God's actually answered your prayer, Paul. They're all yours, all of them. You get them all. And. Uh, um, and so you can see Paul is quite desperate to keep them all together, isn't he? No one separates you all. You all stay with me. Okay, he's given you all those who sail with you. So keep up your courage, uh, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground in some island. <laughs> okay, nevertheless, we have to crash. Yeah. Yeah, what, a, what a good speech that is, isn't it? So don't worry, we're all going to be fine, but the car's toast. Right? So on the 14th night, we're still being driven along in the Adriatic Sea, which was actually one of its names. And then uh, the, the, they keep doing soundings. Anyone know what a sounding is? It's where you drop a, yes, drop a weight, and they, and they notice that the, the seabed's going like that, which tells you what? Yeah, getting closer to the shore, yes. And, uh, they, they, that. and so they're afraid, of course, what's hanging around islands is sandbars and rocks. So now they're really afraid that, oh, it's nice to find land, but at the same time, it's actually dangerous. And isn't that true of just about every experience that we have in real life? It's, it's nice that I'm going to get sent to... Peru, you arrive. Oh, I'm in Peru. It's 
really dangerous here. <laughs> okay, you know, it's um, there's that 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 uh, mix of joy and fear all at the same time in a call from the Lord, where you move to another place or you walk into a room and you've got to give your sermon. There's that joy and fear all at the same time. And uh, fearing that we're going to get dashed against the rocks, is verse 29, they dropped four anchors, right? And so they're really desperate to, to stay. I have no clue how they've thrown everything else over there. They've still got anchors. Yeah. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the assailers let the lifeboat down. Now, why would they start doing that at this time? Because what do they think? Land is close. Right, There's, you know, if we know that the the the, the, right, the land's going like this, there's got to be land. So uh, the sailors uh, pretend that they're lowering some anchors, but they actually do the lifeboat. And uh, Paul notices how we don't know, but he goes to the centurion, and uh, so he's been talking to everybody. Now he he's really taking charge of every situation, and he takes charge with the centurion. Um, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And the centurion listens this time. And so we cut the lifeboat away. Can you imagine the grumbling after that? Isn't Paul everyone's best friend? Okay. So just because you tell the truth doesn't mean that you're going to be everybody's best friend. In fact, isn't it true that most often when we do tell the truth, suddenly we lose a lot of friends? and we discover who our real friends are. But it is important to tell the truth because the truth will set you free, yes. But it comes with a consequence, <coughs> comes with a price, and in Paul's case, probably the crew weren't very happy with him. So he might be hanging out with the soldiers a little bit more these days. And, uh, and then, then you get this interesting thing. Um, Paul, Paul breaks bread. We're in the middle of a storm, no one's eaten, everyone's quite seasick. We've still got some food around, so that's kind of nice. And uh, Paul leads the way by saying, you actually need to keep your strength up now, guys. Okay, and uh, so let's all have a meal. And he takes charge in that way, and he takes charge uh, by, and he demonstrates it himself. He breaks bread, and he, again, a very Jewish uh, thing. What do we have? Um, it says he took some bread and he made the blessing. He did the bracha, right? This, and, uh, which, and, and I, they, they kind of, in the Greek, it's probably the only way that they knew how to say it. He gave thanks to God. But in Hebrew, you would say, he did the bracha, which, of course, by this stage, we know is what's the blessing? Hamotzi. He does the blessing of bread. Now, we actually have this, dis this discussion in Sefer Brachot, um, by Rabbi Shemel and Hillel, which are a whole generation prior to Yeshua. So we actually know what this blessing was. Because okay? in that debate, they, uh, Rabbi Hillel and Shemai, they actually say the blessing, they say the brachot, and they say, when do we actually say it? And they have this discussion is when you say it, when you, when you shouldn't say it, how many hours you have to say it before, is a piece of bread worth it, is a whole meal worth it, you know, all these kinds of things. And so we, we know the words Paul probably stood up and, and said. And, uh, and then he begins to eat. <coughs> he encourages everybody. Um, and so everybody eats. And then you get that, that uh, list of uh, the numbers of people. It is true. There is a debate. <coughs> Some manuscripts have less than others. 
that shouldn't scare anyone. Okay, it just means that there are manuscripts that have different sized boats that were on. Okay, and um, if if this if yeah, I mean there actually is a boat called and uh, which, which which we know of a boat called the Isis. Uh, while we, we never found it in terms of like a shipwreck, it describes its size. It's a massive thing. Okay, so we have historical records that Alexandrian ships were big. 276 could easily have been the real number. Okay. Something interesting there is says uh, when he uh, suggests that they eat, he doesn't say eat, he says taste. And then at the end of it, he says uh, that they all uh, had plenty to eat, they, they, they were satiated. Hmm. So from tasting uh, bread to, to being satisfied. Being luscious meat. Yeah, well, yes. That's right, yes. Yeah, the, the bread is quickly turning into sugar in their mouths, yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, yes. How much did they eat? Did they bring out more? You know, it is the Jewish tradition, of course, that the first thing you do in a meal, regardless of what's there, is the bread. Okay, so yeah, here we have a, a very a reflection of a very real eyewitness event. Okay, uh, which is good. Yeah, they taste and then somehow are satisfied. Doesn't say that they had anything else. Could have, could also have just had, had, had bread. But uh, they are uh, much encouraged and then they throw the grain, <laughs> even though that's the thing they've just eaten, yeah, into the sea. Uh, and when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, uh, which is interesting, okay. Um, not, maybe they've actually never been to Malta. Um, it's possible. Um, you would probably, these guys probably have no clue where they are on the map. Um, and uh, and where and they see a, a sandy beach and they decide to run the ship aground if they could, and so they loose the anchors, which means they cut them. Okay, the text shows that they didn't bring them up. Okay, they, it actually again is reflecting the historical way of actually how you did sailing back then. Okay, you lost four anchors or five anchors or whatever they did. Left them in the sea. Left them in the sea, and they're all over the Mediterranean. Okay, when, when, you, when you do uh, water archaeology, you use anchors everywhere, because that's the way ships would, would work. A big stone with a hole for it. Big stone with a hole in it, yep, that's it. And they would just pile them up. They would just be all <coughs> on the side of, a, of, the, of the ship, and you just need one, throw it over. Okay, uh, uh, what do they do? They, 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 then they hoisted the foresail into the wind and made for the beach. Verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar. Oops, things don't go wrong. Uh, things go bad to worse now, and then it breaks apart. Okay, which is exactly what Paul kind of said was going to happen. Um, the soldiers immediately uh, do what soldiers do, which is, I oh, just kill everyone. Right. Um, uh, there's no reason for them to do that. Of course, that's just the way that they think. Um, and the centurion wants to spare Paul's life. <coughs> and he kept them from carrying out their plan. So Paul, who has saved the ship, has now carried favor in, in good graces with Julius, our centurion, um, and, uh, and saves the entire crew as the, the angel had said. And so they swim, they paddle, they do whatever they can, and they're all uh, reaching safety. Wow, what a story. Now, isn't that interesting that when Jesus came to Paul, 
in, in Caesarea and said, you are going to be my witness in Rome, completely did not mention this chapter at all. Mm-hmm. Right? Jesus doesn't say, man, it's going to be rough, unbelievably rough. You're going to be so seasick, it's incredible. But don't worry, you know, ship's going to break apart, you're going to be on a following on two, three vessels, you're going to end up in Malta. I'll tell you exactly where you are. You don't get that. And that, as we've been learning um, in the, just in sacred history, but in a lot of our stories, we don't always get the entire journey set before us. We get the call, get thee to Jerusalem. But that's it. doesn't tell you how long. Jesus didn't say it's going to take you two and a half years to get to Rome. He just said you're going to get to Rome. No time date. Um, and so we, I think that's a good lesson for us uh, to learn that you know you can have the Holy Spirit, you can have a call from the Lord, but you will not quite know the timing, no. and you certainly won't know if it's going to be smooth or 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 not. Except that you do know, and Paul knew, I will eventually get to Rome. Mm-hmm. I don't know about everybody else, mm-hmm. and so maybe that's the reason why I prayed too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you know, Jesus said, "I'm going to Rome." Okay, I can go to sleep very easily. Aristarchus, good knowing you, mate. But uh, yeah, Luke, you still writing this one down? Yeah, make sure you sign off tonight. It might be your last. But no, he actually made prayed for everybody else as well, and was rewarded with 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 that prayer, um, uh, with with the lives of the entire ship. So he can't what? No, he can't stop witnessing. It's a good thing. And uh, even though it doesn't say that uh, all these uh, soldiers immediately embraced uh, the Messiah, it would be nice if they did, but, um, but he still saved them anyway. And again, that's a good lesson for us, is it not? Yeah. That uh, we might be hanging out with the unbelievers, but that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray for them. Or do them a kindness. Uh, even though we are also encouraged to look after the household of faith, yes, we are. Yes, we are. But we should also know that the uh, that those not of the household of faith are valuable to the Lord too. I was going to say when you were asking before uh, if we saw anything that occurred to us or stood out to us. I was going to say that the details of how God cared for all of those men and saved their lives and made a witness to all of them. Yep. They got a chance to see that God really can save you from a very ugly situation. Yes, we've had other boat experiences in Jewish tradition where people saw God act. Who's the big famous one? Jonah. Jonah. Yes. And uh, unfortunately in that town, um, the ship doesn't immediately uh, praise the Lord, but a whole whole city does. (laughs) But uh, yeah. So it, it is possible that some of these 276 souls uh, join the Jesus movement. It could be that the centurion's name is there because he becomes one. It could be worth it. They say, I'm going to be bothering to put the centurion's name down because he joins the household of faith. Could be. We don't know. However, the text is there and uh, it's it's in grouping detail. And it does show us how Paul uh, behaved during all this mess. Do you think that he does? Breaking 
Okay, so for the recording, <laughs> uh, the, the breaking of bread, the meal during the storm, is what other significance could there be? It's a good question. Any ideas? Is there anything significant to a meal in a storm? The breaking of bread? The nourishment that comes in a storm? There's a lot there you could probably preach if you wanted to. Is there any possibility that the back end of verse 24, lo, God has granted you all those who sail with you, that they actually all were born again? You, uh, you, there could be a reading. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I would go down that line, but it's possible. It's possible to have a and reading like that. There's quite a lot of people, but uh, yeah. they, you know, would have made a massive difference to the church when all these people were saved mm -hmm. um, physically yeah. and, uh, and settled down. Well, in the next chapter, once again, Paul's going to get um, told that he's a god, which has unfortunately happened before. <laughs> okay, uh, It's going to happen again. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see. But I, I'm always a little bit suspicious when people get names. Like, why does the text... Because the text sometimes doesn't name people. That's also suspicious. But when you, when you name someone, uh, you think, ah, oh, now why are we doing that? Could be that, uh, that Julius, like the other centurion, that Peter um, uh, baptised in Acts 10 that these guys, uh, Cornelius, you know, these guys um, end up becoming believers. You know, the Roman army ended up being, you know, what was it, 10% of the empire was Christian, and that included 10% of the army. Right? It may also be that, <clears throat> that um, the storm was not the main thing. Could be. Can go and track this guy down and ask him. And ask him. Yep, could be. Could be that as a de as a um, uh, defense document uh, and to, you know, of this certain regiment. And this is his name, and uh, these were the. Uh, it doesn't give you the names of the ships or anything like that. Not that it's important. It's all at the bottom of the sea. You're not going to find them anymore. But um, yeah, and we don't name the captain. You know, we ain't talking to him again. He's an idiot. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I ain't sailing with you. You're a moron. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So um, next week it's Hanukkah. Well, that's the that's the topic. Next week is a special uh, one-off where we will be going over um, the the time period of the Maccabees. Uh, I'll bring about four to six texts from the books of the Maccabees, uh, one to four. Um, and we'll be seeing a little bit as to uh, the influence that we find in Maccabean theology that appears in the New Testament. So that includes things like martyrdom, um, dying for the sins of other people, okay, is actually in the Maccabees. So you can see that within the Jewish world of the Second Temple period, there was a healthy discussion on the value of a holy person. And so you can see that in the Jesus movement, the Yeshua movement, yes, it was a little bit unclear as the Messiah was going to be doing this, but heroes could do it too. Okay? And uh, so there's some angiology that's there in the, in the text. There's... Uh, 
uh, all kinds of uh, good stuff like that. And there's lots and lots of dying for God. <laughs> My favourite's the guy who stabs the elephant. Eliezer. Yes. Yeah, not the smartest time to stab an elephant, but um, yeah. And then he died. And I always think, you know, you know, Peter Jackson probably had that in mind when Legolas killed his big one. Yeah. Only counts as one. I can just imagine someone say that the Eliezer. Yeah, but it only counts as one, mate. <laughs> All right, okay, so we'll see you uh, next week. And that includes donuts. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.